Hello, and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show into our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And uh, so uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, um, my national audience. Whenever you happen to be listening to this show, we welcome you today, um, as always. And um, we have a um, repeat guest, but it's been quite quite um, a few years since we've had um, prosecutor um, and head of his own nonprofit, the Association of Prosecuting Attorneys, David LeBon, on with us, and I'll be welcoming him in just a second. But want to say, um, as always, we have with me coming from the headquarters of Imagine Publicity um, in Myrtle Beach, Delilah, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, and uh, once again, another great show we've got going on with, um, I mean, David LeBon has been here in the past and explained a lot of different things, but I think we're taking a little different direction with him today, and I think listeners will be quite pleased and, and learn a lot. He has so much information. Um, I mean, we could do shows with him every week and still not tap at all, so I'm I'm very excited that he agreed to come back. Yeah, because it's 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 always a um it's always a learning experience and I think we're we're gonna maybe begin with a little bit of an overview because there there is that passage of time in case people are not familiar and I think it's very unusual that a prosecutor would, you know, leave his world of prosecuting um to form his own nonprofit for the betterment of other prosecutors and crime victims. So David, good morning and welcome to Shattered Lives once again. It's a reunion. It's so so um, great to have you back. Yes, it is. And good morning, Lady Justice, and good morning, Delilah. Well, good morning to you. Um, so today, before we begin our, our, our um, actual topic, I wondered if you would tell us um, just, just a little thumbnail sketch of the APA did you form this organization, you know, uh, uh, several years ago out of uh, being dis- disillusioned with the prosecu- prosecutorial world? Well, that's, that's, that's a, a, a fabulous question, and I'll try to do as quick a thumbnail as I can. Um, okay. I, I would say in my life it's, it, it's, it's now a 10-10-10. So I spent 10 years uh, and started as, as a trial prosecutor in the state of California. I worked first in Orange County, California, and did a lot of work today's show talking about uh, children, um, did a lot of work with the area of child abuse and uh, the advocacy center and such there, um, as well as the gangs. And we've, we've discussed gang and the gang uh, world a little bit, so let's, let's focus today about, on the kids. Uh, then, um, due to a bankruptcy, you talk about lots of change agents in one's life, but Orange County, California went bankrupt in the 90s. I then uh, went north and went up to Humboldt County, almost the Oregon border, and got involved there working uh, to set up an advocacy center. So working with the 
victim advocates, working with Child Protective Services, law enforcement, um, and through the prosecutor's office to do a better job on the cases involving the children in the community because, unfortunately, there they had had a couple of child deaths that at least the Board of Supervisors, which is the one that decided that, that things needed to change and they were the funders, um, that they were preventable deaths. From there, I went to the uh, to the state capitol. I ran the uh, California District Attorneys Association uh, for approximately the next 10 years. I started as the deputy director and then ultimately became the executive director. In addition to running that organization, we had an issue called the Institute for the Advancement of Criminal Justice. That was uh, more of an opportunity to look and say, not what system do we have, but what system should we have, and how do we reach and collaborate and, and work with others. That was especially true in the area, again, of things like victims' rights, crime victims, making sure folks have voices, um, and make sure that, that the prosecutors are in tune to what is necessary. I'll say one other thing about coming from California. California had the crime victims' bill, had crime victims' rights. Um, and so it was very surprising to me as I went from the state level to the national level that there was concern by including ourselves, prosecutors, about, no, we can't give the, the victims rights. We can't give them a voice. Look what's going to happen. You know, these are our cases. Um, and so now I've spent 10 years at the national level trying to uh, refocus and work and see, again, can't we do things better? Can't we be more inclusive? So I first uh, moved to be a part of the National District Attorneys Association. I don't know if the disillusioned is the right word or just felt like, there is more that can be done, and there certainly is a, a large group of offices out there who have a lot to offer that don't appear to be represented, especially in the national. And so in 2009 uh, was actually the, the time, so it's eight years, and we've probably been talking for those full eight years, um, is was, was the creation of the Association of Prosecuting Attorneys, or APA, uh, we are a private nonprofit. As you said, it was my organization. I've, it, that's not true. I've got a great board. If you look, we've got 15 board members uh, from some of the, the largest and finest offices in the country. We have folks at the county level as well as the city level. And then through our various projects and activities, we're also paying attention to the state level and working to as much as possible uh, to be in tune with the, our federal partners. But the significant thing about AT, APA and what I try to, to get my staff and, and uh, members to think about consistently is what should we be doing? Are we doing things that, that are creating a public safety benefit? Um, is, it, is it making it better? And are we paying attention? And, and we don't use the phrase community anymore. We, we talk about communities. Who are the various folks within that particular jurisdiction that are most impacted by crime, do they have a voice? Are you including them? And then when you uh, talk about things like sentencing reform and, and some of the uh, pushes now to divert cases and do alternative things, um, we are the group that is consistently saying, have you talked to the crime victims? Did you ask them about this? Um, because some of the, quote, reformers never think about the victims, they focus so much on the defendants when they look to uh, justice reform. So, how's that for a thumbnail? Yo, that's that's um, that's a very good overview. And I was just thinking as you're talking, there's so many layers to that. Well, you know, we're going to um, 
sort of uh, push this off into a corner, we're going to do this or that. And even with uh, cold cases, you know, the, the federal government is, uh, uh, <clears throat> because of terrorism, they're putting their resources away from things like that and into other things. So we have to become our own advocates, but with organizations like you to help, I think we're much better off. And just before I... I also wanted to, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but since you are in Washington and there is a new administration on board, what what is your overall perspective right now in terms of what, if they, what they may or may not be doing? And are, are, are you hopeful, regardless of, you know, who, who's in charge, which party it is? Do you get a sense that you're, you're going to get um, cooperation um, from the new administration with what you do? Well, uh, that's, that's a fabulous question. Yes, yes, you did uh, corner me immediately. Um, <laughs> in, in, in my life now, I've been through, uh, what, four governors and now uh, three presidents. Um, it, I always have If you do not have hope and if you do not look at any sort of a, of a change, in a change of administration or change of personnel, if you look at that as a tragedy rather than an opportunity, um, then, then I think uh, hope goes away, and you might as well just pack it in. So I will start. So with, there's always hope. There's always hope. Everybody brings different uh, strengths into it. Um, I, I, you know, our world is more focused. So, so what is the attorney general? What, what are his priorities? Um, who is is his? You know, for instance, the deputy attorney general. You know, what did Rod bring into it? What does uh, AG Sessions want to do? I think the um, and and there have been lots of complaints about um, some of the things the Attorney General has done quickly, his uh, memo to the U.S. attorneys, for instance, on the handling of cases and the filing of charges. That has uh, certainly brought uh, a lot of criticism toward him. What I would say to your listening audience, especially as it relates to our topic today with both child abuse as well as where we're going with crime victims' rights and handling of cases, we have had a dramatic shift to go from, you know, A.G. Lynch and the past administration, which was a lot more towards criminal justice reform, to A.G. Sessions, who was a U.S. attorney, who at least the initial steps has been more to traditional um, case handling um, and case processing. So I cannot use the crystal ball to say where exactly we're going to go, but the one thing that I do know is he he is focused on prosecution and law enforcement, especially prosecution. So there are plenty well, of I guess I guess you know, that's a hopeful sign, then, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, I guess that's a hopeful sign. It, it, it's it's a hopeful sign, and I would say in the area of child abuse, one of the issues that came up in his confirmation and Senator Collins, when she introduced him, talked about his interest in his work with the Victims of of Child Abuse Act. There's there's two vocas out there. Uh, one well, is usually part of our worst, but but the other, and the victim of child abuse is one of our major projects, and it is $21 million uh, nationwide to work with the advocacy centers and do better things for kids. So it is it is refreshing to have an attorney general who, who actually is involved in one of the projects that we, we run day to day. Yeah, well, that that, that is <clears throat> that is hopeful because many times we don't get that situation. And I know there's as many as 11 different uh, that I noted on your website, pr- prosecutorial programs that you you deal with topically in webinars and <clears throat> conferences and whatnot. So you have many opportunities to educate. But 
So to get to the heart of the matter with regard to what you were just alluding to, um, and I know I spoke with your assistant quite a, a, a lot with regard to um, children, and you've recently had a, a, a conference um, with regard to child abuse and child neglect. But we, So we can delve into that, but we want to also talk about, you know, abduction. And one thing that was really intriguing to me when she spoke about this was the fact that um, like some other aspects of crime, it's very underreported. So I'm wondering as to how that happens and why and all of that. So um, why don't you introduce this and let us know how you got involved in this. Okay. And, and as you said, you know, Vanessa working very hard on this show, you mentioned it being my organization. It, it's, it's our organization. We've got a staff of a little over 25 as right. I said, 11 different particular uh, projects, about a $3 million budget. So uh, we're, we're busy, and it's a big country, and there's lots of uh, uh, issues out there uh, to work with prosecutors' offices to make their community safer. As, you know, going in that topic of child abduction, there are really three different kinds of abductions that, that you, can, you can put them or classify them when you say, mm-hmm. what's, what's the problem? And, and right now with the problem, if you include everything involved in that topic, it is hundreds of thousands of kids every year. It, it is very scary. But what does that include? The first that it includes in the majority of the cases are going to be the, uh, the family abduction. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of prosecutors' offices that are involved in, in the, the the, those that I'll say variety of child abduction cases, there's federal interest because just as with the child support, there's money to try to recover the kids from whichever the abducting or the violation of the court orders. So, so that's a very large number. It's not that there's not victimization happening there, but, but that's not, I don't think, as scary, if we use that phrase, to the community or a parent about someone's going to come and steal my child. The, the second variety is, and that's always the question when a child goes missing, is did, did they voluntarily, did they run away? And many, many of the cases are at least start as a, quote, runaway case. And, and another piece of our work is the issue of human trafficking. So, again, putting a number on that. Mm-hmm. Just in the area of the human trafficking, you've got about 200,000 separate underage females being trafficked into sex work here in the United States every year. And are we talking age 18 or age 20 up to, I mean, when when they go from child to, quote, adulthood? Generally, what what they use is the age of majority in the particular state. So the most common age uh, Lady Justice is used is 18. It could be as low as 16, depending on the state. And again, you got another topic out there about raising the age. So, so at least use the top line of 18 and under as it relates to that category. But many, many of the folks that end up being trafficked may very well have or likely ran away. We're in foster care. We're, we're, we're someplace outside of the either the parent or the guardian. Mm-hmm. And then the third, and this is the smallest, but this is the, the one that gets so much um, attention. 
um, especially nationally and the funding, and you mentioned the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children or what we call NICMIC, those are the, you know, quote, true abduction. Those are the cases that, that the parents did everything right, and uh, yet uh, some, some, and let's call them what they are, some criminal, um, decided that, that they were going to uh, abduct and abscound uh, with that child, and um, some are recovered uh, alive. Many are not. Many of those cases end up in, in prosecutors' offices, and you talk about the victim implications, especially more recently where folks who were abducted, stranger abductions, are now being found alive. What has that done to their life? How do you provide victim services? How do you investigate that, prosecute it? How, how do you work with a victim like that? So um, how's that for a very broad, going very big to um, the particular or the small? Sure. I mean, there's a lot involved in, involved in this. And um, do you, so your, your um, organization works with all of those aspects, I mean, all of those types of cases simultaneously? Or are you trying to focus on those that are, you know, less known in the media or prior, you prioritize in terms of need? Or how do you do that? Okay, so so the most particular thing with, with the stranger abductions, and that goes to Nick Mick, that goes to John Walsh, that I think everyone okay. knows who John is. There right. is a pro- project called, uh, you know, Team Adam, and that was one of the beginnings of the National Center. And on behalf of APA, I'm very fortunate to be on the Team Adam board um, to be part of the steering committee and the executive committee and, and involved in those the day-to-day activities. That is the very best example and the most important thing that when a child goes missing, it is that you've, you have a very short window to try to find the, the child. Now, on behalf of Team Adam and, and the work, they are doing incredible things and because and and you could say John Walsh media attention and such there is the star power there that's been star power to get things like retired detectives um other uh, folks like ourselves prosecutors and you know, others to be part of a force that once a child goes missing that someone is right there and that someone is there trying to follow up and and track and work the case and someone is also there, someone like, you know, John himself um, or the Jacob uh, Weatherly family, uh, that the, 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 you've got family members who say, I know what it's like. And that's something that we can never uh, say, no matter how many cases we've handled, no matter how many victims uh, we've worked with, we don't understand uh, what a family's going through once, once their, their child is, has gone missing and may very well have been criminally abducted. That support piece was not there when, when, when uh, Adam was, was uh, kidnapped, and, and that's why I know that, that John has devoted his life and time and talents towards let's make things better. Right. Well, that that fills a huge void right there, um, and a need. So there's there's that aspect with regard to family, the family abduction aspect. Is that primarily um, families who uh, are going through contentious divorces and 
and uh, custody battles and, and that and that kind of thing? And what are the numbers with regard to that? Those, those are, as I said, that's why I started out. Those are the majority of the cases. Those, those are, those are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of cases. Um, okay. Because that's exactly. But the majority of those, while they will be referred to as a child abduction, are the violation of the order. And so, is there an order in place? When was was the child supposed to have been given to the other uh, parent or, or guardian or, or dropped off or foster? And um, the individual is, is not there at that time. And so, that's why I said that with with the prosecutor's office involved, and, and a lot of that relates to the child support. And, and the payment of the support orders um, is once that occurs, getting uh, you know in, into court, figuring out. But it's not usually a question there of where the child is. It's a question of why wasn't the child returned to the other parent um, in in a timely manner. There there are some of those cases that are that are you know, a lot more difficult or, or some of them that you can't do anything about. Um, I was uh, trying to help or asked to help uh, someone who he had a father, uh, or fathered a child with a woman who was a foreign national. Um, he, went, while living here, never paid support, didn't uh, do anything to establish the paternity. She took the child home. And she now is in, a, in you know, saying he's it, it's not his his child. Why do I need to pay attention? And you've got to go through the Hague Convention. You've got to do all sorts of international things to try to first establish paternity, and second, uh, try to show as as he is a legend, and I believe him now um, that that it really is a, a parental abduction versus uh, it's it's someone who has a child and and is is the natural mother of that child and is choosing to live. Um, in some other country besides the United States. So, wow. But, but, I, but I think that, that when you look at the victim aspect, while you certainly have that um, breach of trust, and especially as a parent, you are definitely going to be concerned, you know, that, that he or she is not treating the, the child properly or that the violation of that court order, and we read about those cases, right, where... You know, the the ex-husband takes the kids and kills them. I mean, it 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 definitely happens, and they are at risk anytime they're in some place that, that they're not lawfully or legally supposed to be. So I don't want to minimize it. I feel that working on the victim side and trying to put a case together, it's very different and a very different rush and resource when it's in what could be a kidnapping or an end abduction versus a uh, custody dispute. Mm-hmm. Is it is it very um, uh, are the are the numbers very high in terms of those situations that you just described where um, the the father may not realize that that they they did father this child and then after the fact decide oh yes I want to take responsibility I want to do this and they are taken or given a you know given a fight and saying no. No, we we don't want you in our life. I mean, is that a high proportion? Because in in social media, we always hear about those that are you know skipping out on their responsibilities. But are they truly a lot of of fathers out there who 
um, feel that responsibility and want to do the right thing and want to be in the child's life but yet are prohibited. Is, are those numbers very high? That's a, a, a great question because it it, it, it it certainly yes can can we get right to that number? Um, no. I it, it and and it, the one that I was just talking about mm-hmm. as I kind of said that like after his daughter was gone, now he starts to hey I really miss her that's my natural child I want to establish mm-hmm. I want to do things. In in my world, I just can't help but think it's so similar to with folks that end up in custody, right? I love my kids. I wouldn't, you know. Well, when you were out, you were uh, harming others, and now mm-hmm. that you're locked up, now your family is finally important to you. You know, didn't you think that doing that robbery is going to impact your family? So, uh, Lady Justice, there's a piece of once they're gone, now I really miss them, or now I want to step up. And I really think the irony is one of one of the cases and one of the victims I've worked with is J.C. Dugard. I was just J- thinking J- of her. J.C.'s <laughs> mm-hmm. father never had done anything until she resurfaced, and then yeah. he decides, "Hey, that's my daughter," you know. Um, and now I went in, you know, especially I think it was twenty million dollars that the the state gave um, to try to. It was an eighteen-year abduction. You know, but right. with, with with a known offender, um, so there certainly could be some pretty unclean hands on, on the state. Could be, you know, everyone could be critical uh, twenty twenty hindsight. But as you ask that question, it's like, well, one of our cases that we've been talking about and working with had this this situation. So I don't know that it's always a situation that whoever, and it's generally, you know, the the father, or or the father of the child, the natural father. But there are a lot of situations where during the paternity action, and for prosecutors' offices that are working on things like child support, they're fighting it. Not my child. You know, it's got to be somebody else. And and then now, when you've got some rights involved, some money or something, and now right. I want, you know, oh, that's my child. I love money's them. the magnet. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's very because you know the children are being used as pawns. And how mm-hmm. do you, you, you know, how do you prevent that? How do you protect them? And and, and and what what's going on there? You know, what are the steps that you need to take to kind of sort that out and and ensure that these people can't get away with that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 all that's true, and that's why when you talk about numbers, the the parental abduction is a huge driver in this area. But I don't know that it, I, I, there, there's so much involved in that. Because a lot of that also is the payment of uh, child support and the belief at the time when somebody is paying support, well, if I'm paying for the child, then why don't I get him, get to have him? So it's not fair and it's not right and criticisms of family courts and all of those issues. So hmm. the, what, the best thing the I can say is one of, one of my mm-hmm. uh, buddies who's, who's a uh, family court uh, judge in Missouri, and he is you know, one of those rural judges, and, and uh, you know, he points out, look, if they couldn't get along while married, you know, in, in quote, in love, right. how can they then come into my court and by the, you know, pounding of a gavel or by some thoughtful decision, I'm suddenly going to fix 20 years of problems, 15 years of problems. 
they didn't get along then, the very best thing is to get them <laughs> separated and apart, uh, you know, and into some sort of a civil um, compromise. So there's nothing magical yeah. about the judicial system with folks who don't get along. Right, and it, it, it all has to come down to what is in the best interest of the child, correct? It's not, you know, the well, mother yes, or the and father. Then, and also, right? also, where's the child's rights in all of this? Right. Who um, is the best to represent the rights of the child when, you know, you have two parents who both think they're the best thing for the child, and maybe they are and maybe they aren't, but... Um, you know, here again, you have the the poor kid who's who's the monkey in the middle and being used as a pawn for adults to, you know, n- who don't get along to get back at each other. So yes, that's fabulous because let's let's touch that in two ways. One is especially our work in child abuse. Our doctrine is always the child first. That's abuse, neglect. It's, it is about the child. Let's let's figure that out first. Then we can look, and that's that's why the child advocacy centers are such a great place, because you've got the collaboration between the prosecutors, law enforcement, social services, all of the different victim and support groups, um, and and other um, school services and such. But it's but it is that 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 primary focus. And for once, people are saying, what about the child? The second, and for your listeners and for those involved, I'm just going to say bless you to all those folks that are out there as CASAs. Those are court-appointed special advocates. And if you're not a CASA, go down to the local courthouse and volunteer and sign up. The, that piece of advocacy is critical in these child abuse, especially more than neglect, or as we're saying, you've got to struggle back and forth. Is the child at risk or not at risk? Having an outside person who cares and is focusing on the kids is huge because that many times changes the entire dynamic and that informs the court so much better as to what they should do. So there is hope there. There are pathways. Things are better. But when it's a fight and the child is being used, it's just awful. There, there, there's no end. Think of the long-term ramifications of that child, as that child then later in life grows up, decides whether or not they're going to have uh, children themselves, um, and thinking what their parents did did to them. Yeah, um, I, I'm thinking of someone that we, uh, Delilah and I both know that I believe is as part of that, um, as part of the CASA um, uh, dynamic there. Um, w- with regard to the availability of, of those professionals, it, 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 are, is that a, a list that the court provides similar to if you're going for conservatorship? Because I know in working with my clients with multiple disabilities, and if they don't have a conservator, many times there's not support in the family, and maybe there's not even you know, a, a nurse or a social worker or an attorney to be assigned. There's just not a preconceived list that they can pull from and say, here's this person where we can um, go to in terms of, you know, assigning a good a good family to and, and all of that is how does that work? Uh, the, 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 the way it works is it is a court assignment, but the, there's no money involved here. It's not like conservatorship where – uh, someone is is coming in on behalf of the state to try to take over the child. This is a purely voluntary effort, 
And okay. to be a CASA, one doesn't necessarily, there, there is, of course, training, but one doesn't need to be a mental health professional or something to be a CASA. One just needs to listen, be a voice, and, and try to help. And that's why it's, it is a great window for, into the system for those that, that have not experienced it, have not had family involved, um, and, and to realize what's going on in their own community. Many times the folks that are part of the CASA movement or, or have been CASAs end up running legislation. Earlier we were talking about resources, you know, how can it be that we're not doing this or that for the children? They are great voices because they're outsiders and they're volunteers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was thinking in terms of us being able to visualize what the actual process should be and you know, we, we know that any Murphy's Law, anything that could go wrong does go wrong, but could you sort of paint a picture of when you initially get assigned a case and the steps involved and um, what, you know, in terms of do these get, quote, unquote, resolved? Does it take a couple of years? I mean, what are the steps that need to happen in, in the best-case scenario and, and what are the, you know, the – the the major challenges that you face uh, when a, when a new case um, arrives on your docket or you you decide to take that that case just so we get a picture of of what's going on kind of from beginning to end if you okay. could all right um, let's we're here talking about abduction so let's yep. use the, the very best uh, case situation and, and as far as you know how do things work. Assuming for a moment that I'm a prosecutor in an office that has something called vertical prosecution, which was in the area of child abuse, the, the design that I was involved with and is really the best in, in the model area, meaning that a single prosecutor will handle that case from the beginning as far as making a filing decision on it, all the way to whether it's trial, sentencing, even uh, following in through uh, the parole process. So one attorney entire time, the family is not being passed around and the victim's not being passed around. Mm-hmm. Um, various people have various steps. In most of those situations, especially in a large office, we will, and we use the phrase, catch the case. We will, we will catch cases from a generally a particular city or precinct, however uh, the office is organized. So let's use the very best situation is a child goes missing, We've got things like Amber Alert out there. It, it, the child does have a cell phone. We're able to track it because we've got a lot of issues out there right now with encryption, and there's a case called Carpenter about using the, the triangulation to be able to find uh, that phone. The, the privacy advocates are, are saying, you know, the law enforcement ought not to have that. Let's assume for it. It was a, a true stranger abduction, and within that 72-hour window, um, the child was recovered, and the child was recovered unharmed. The wow. prosecutor, if if they were in in fact assigned to that particular precinct, the precinct did the location. You know, the the abductor did not get far. Um, we would have immediate. So we would be involved in things like do you need search warrants? What are the other pieces of evidence? Because the other thing that's, that you're going to want to go through your mind is if this individual took this child, what has that person done before? Because. Mm-hmm. How do you wake up in the morning and decide I'm going to go abduct an eight-year-old girl? And then what were you intending to do? Because no one would do an act like that with, with no purpose. 
So that becomes part of the the investigative piece has got to lock down that particular case. But a lot of times, as a prosecutor, we're always thinking, why? What's the story behind the case? How do we explain it to the jury? Um, as well as uh, getting immediately there with whoever our advocacy piece is, we've got to meet the family and find out what's going on. And then, as quickly as possible, meet our victim. But it's usually going to be family first, and victim hopefully, in this perfect situation, we've got a child advocacy center. So that's where the victim interview is going to happen, and we will be there observing that victim interview to, again, try to put more pieces together as well as prepare and figure out and be a part of. But that's why we have mental health professionals is is to, to figure out how do we support the victim now that this uh, terrible and traumatic event has happened. So we've got the perfect case. They were um, caught quickly or he was caught quickly. We'll be involved in the filing decision. Then, then, do you indict it? Do you take it to a preliminary hearing? You know, are you going to have uh, the child testify, or are you going to uh, hold back and figure a way of moving the case forward without using victim testimony? That's, to me, the preferred way. I really don't want to put my kid up there at an mm-hmm. earlier stage and have the defense, you know, harass and and even even have her in front of him, meaning the defendant, um, until we absolutely have to. So try try to move it into the trial stage without that victim testimony and then uh, get ready for what's the defense going to be, what are they going to say about the family, what are they going to say about the child, what's the excuse, and can we overcome that. And that's when they also, at that same time, do we have other acts? Is this part of a common plan or scheme? Was this someone who was already a registered sex offender? What were the prior acts? And, And can we attempt to seek with the judge to, to get the prior acts there in front of the jury. Because uh, let's assume this guy's going to wear his suit and look really nice and explain it was all just a big mistake and, you know, didn't even know she was yeah. in the car. Um, oh. it's, it's really helpful to say, well, eh, you know, you've, you've been convicted before of kidnapping, haven't you? And why don't you tell the jury about, you know, Amber for me? Um, and, and that's really to try to make the case be as live as possible in, in, in front of the jury hopefully get get a good and righteous uh, sentence out of it. And then depending on uh, what system it is, I mentioned the parole function. Because at some point, I think parole is probably on everybody's mind after OJ, you know, he's walking free after nine years of a 33-year year sentence. Right, uh, yeah. Parole is out there. And, and uh, here, here we've got to go back and grab our victims and get our victims back to court and try to recreate for that parole board uh, the reasons why there was a sentence in, in the very first place. So if everything works, that uh, Lady Justice would kind of be um, all the pieces working uh, perfectly. Yeah, and and even so, um, if these are child if these are um, child abduction cases, are they necessarily thought of as well as opposed to just adults being involved? Would they be more fast tracked in the system? They they could be, and there may be a real push by the defense to try the case as quickly as possible uh, for two reasons. One is, depending on the age of the victim, you don't want the victim to be able to get any older because they might be better and more articulate um, the older that they become. And that's particularly true in things like many of the priest cases. 
um, if you're able to get in the the prior bad acts, as, as they're referred to legally, um, right. some of some of those victims are stronger than your current child victim. Another piece is if there is other evidence out there in other cases, that would be another reason why the defense would want to move quickly because they'll want to isolate this case, get this case tried independently before we can figure out this is part of a string and and uh, be able to consolidate or at least get evidence of, of other crimes. So that would be the two reasons to to move it quickly. On the, on the other hand, many uh, defense attorneys will say that uh, – you know, a criminal a de- defending a criminal case is just like fine wine that they get much better over time, and and what they mean is that that over time things start to fall apart. Uh, the impact of the trauma, and I was thinking of one of the abduction cases that I handled. Um, my my victim, the longer it was, the more, um, and she ended up being hospitalized, and um, it was really a question whether she was ever going to be able to come to court, but they were delaying that case as long as possible because of the psychological injuries that that she had suffered and uh, really playing that timing game about when would it be best. And in that situation, I had to dismiss, again, this was under California law, so you can suffer what we call suffer a dismissal. You can dismiss the case and start it all over again uh, before jeopardy attaches. So it was one of those situations that in the interest of the victim, I, I dismissed the case, got a new arrest warrant, and started the case all over again because she was not going to be able to, to uh, testify. And if we had moved forward, I'm sure that the jury would have um, set him free. Ultimately, refiled it, re, uh, tried that case over again, and in that uh, trial, he ultimately was convicted and sentenced to, I think, about 70 years. Um, wow. But so that timing was, is timing is everything. <laughs> timing is everything, and 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 is, as unfortunately trials are supposed to be a search for the truth, and, mm-hmm. and and on behalf of of the prosecutors and the prosecution uh, function, that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to get truth. We're trying to get justice. Um, and again, we're trying. It's the practice of law. Nothing is ever perfect, um, and so often, and and that's the role of the defense attorney. The defense attorney is not there seeking justice. The defense attorney is is doing anything they can to uh, get their client to be able to walk free. And and finally, remember, we've got a system that says it's so much better to have 100 walk free than one innocent be convicted. Uh, And so that's why we've got a very high and appropriate burden of proof. So lots of different factors. Uh, Definitely. Um, I know that... um one of the one of the factors that I think is very important in this um, that was mentioned to me, and maybe this doesn't occur um, um, as frequently as you would like, or in terms of where in the process it begins, but in, in order to to get therapy uh, for the child who is traumatized, does that does that begin? Uh, I mean, if you're able to locate the child and the child is, you know, the, the physical injuries heal, but um, is do you do that you know from from the get go and it, it continues on and how do, how does that go? Uh, absolutely, there is no question, and and that's the beauty of things like the child advocacy centers, because even if there's not a criminal case, let's assume on the other hand this did fall apart, or maybe there is some reason you know why there was, and and so what appeared to be an abduction was not. Does that mean that that child wasn't harmed? 
and why wouldn't you get therapy and treatment immediately? If it was a physical injury, would would folks sit there and say, well, you know, I don't know. You know, she's bleeding, but let's let's give it a week and see. We feel the same about the psychological harm. Get treatment now, um, victims and, and, and folks, and that's why paying attention to that treatment as you look and, and work towards the court plan and the court tours and all the, the, the work that we do with the kids, trying to get them, because try walking into that courtroom and talking about the worst day of your life. You know, there's a tremendous amount of bravery for these kids that are willing to testify and do testify every day in, in, in our criminal courts. So if they're not in therapy, I can't imagine how are you going to uh, get them into that courtroom and what damage you're going to do to them in that courtroom if, if they don't have somebody they trust and they're, they're not already um, being, being treated and helped. Yeah. Um, I think a, a few years ago we did have, I believe it was Leslie Peterson who runs a program with, in uh, San Diego, and that's what she does for her job. She prepares these children for court. I think I met her at a, no, at a NOVA conference, and that was an, an excellent uh, excellent show that we were able to do as well. But what about the underreported nature of these two? I was, in learning that, I was really struck by that. What, uh, how underreported um, are, are these cases in terms of the aspect of, of the, uh, the abductions? We hear about it in social media if it happens to meet the criteria of an Amber Alert, correct, but not all do. That, yes, that's true, and, and that's why I was saying the, 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 the noise here is were they abducted or did they run away? And that becomes the question, and that really also goes to the family because and I, and I don't think I'm plowing any new ground to talk about many of our victims have significant issues in, in wherever their, their living arrangement is. But quite often, even as dysfunctional as it is, there's that that parent or if if, if there's someone that cares about them, they're you know they're looking at the situation and saying this is different, right? You know, Judy's run off before, but you know she always told blank, um, she always left this, she always answered her phone, or she would respond to a text, but this time she's not doing that. It's it's like with all victim safety issues, somebody's got to pay attention and not just jump to the conclusion, like you said with an Amber Alert. Okay, we're not. Gonna, it doesn't meet the criteria. We're not going to do it. Um, it. You really do need that second level of caring when someone is saying there is something wrong here, and and I think those are the ones that are most at risk. And, and that's why I started earlier in your show, because we're doing so much with the human trafficking, and the human trafficking is in every community. There's no place out there where like, there's nobody being trafficked, whether it's the sex work or, or uh, uh, physical labor. But especially right now with sex work, back page is gone, but there's always another opportunity to, to be out to, uh, to sell girls. They might have yeah. voluntarily left, but at some point after leaving because they have no other method or because they now have met somebody who has now introduced them, here's an easy way to get money, here's, you know, getting them drug addicted, um, 
you know, saying, here, I'll give you a place to set. It's all real easy. You're just going to need to sleep with these five guys tomorrow night. Um, that becomes a situation where the, the initial leaving may not have been an abduction, but now it's definitely criminality. That, that child is absolutely at risk. And if somebody doesn't pay attention, start asking some questions, looking at, um, and, and that's a key for the prosecution offices, for those that have a juvenile unit. If, if somebody's coming in and, and underage and the accusation is, is prostitution, wait a second here, who is right. trafficking her? She's not the defendant. She's the victim. Who else does mm-hmm. she know? And then when you talk about victim services, the tremendous need that is there to be able to get a girl like that out of the trafficking situation and into some sort of a uh, stable home life. So first we talked about costs. Second is the, the foster care system, the juvenile uh, dependency system, not delinquency, dependency, they're not set up for a 13-, 14-, 15-year-old girl who has been out on her own for a while now who is accustomed to making a lot of money, is generally uh, drug or alcohol de- uh, dependent, um, has n- had no boundaries, um, and um, finally, even if she is cooperative, whoever has been trafficking her may very well try to break her out or lure her from wherever the situation is. So the, the, there really are very few places, and, and I was in Atlanta recently and, 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 and with the chief probation officer when one of those landed, you know, and, and, and it's like, where are we going to put her? Because she's going, she's going to run. They're going to try to break her out. Um, we can't really lock her down. She's not a criminal. Um, but mm-hmm. when you go back to what's in her best interest, and this was a situation uh, where her family had suspected, it was what I was trying to say to you earlier, they thought something was a little different, but they too didn't intervene. They were just right. letting it happen, you know, and, and um, until it re- reached that crisis point. It was too late. You know, there's so much crossover. Uh, Delilah, I'm listening to this and sort of preaching to the choir because we know so many people that work in these areas with um, human trafficking as well as missing persons because they. You know, they initially can be identified, oh, oh, that person just a runaway. And then we get, you know, nonprofits like the Q Center involved or, or uh, Heidi Search Center and all of these. So there's so much crossover with all of these, and it gets so complex. I mean, how do we ever sort out sort out these issues? And I don't know, I my hope is that all of these stellar nonprofits can work as a team <laughs> together. Um, also, you know, there's that whole other group, and I see um, with people here in Connecticut who are leaders for the LGBT community, there's many, many young young people that um, are kicked out of their homes, are run away because maybe they're transgender, maybe they're um, bisexual, and they have nowhere to go and they're out on the streets and, and they get into that life as well. There's so many, there's so many children that 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 need help there, David. It's just overwhelming, and um, I don't I don't know how do we get each on the best path, and how do we get um, where we live? I mean, regional services so that I mean, do you think it's it's the answer to have like a 
one-stop shopping in in your uh, in your area so that we can say oh well there's this this place that we can we can put this child temporarily until we get all our ducks in, in a row etc i mean it's very very hard all of what you have been saying i'm just sitting here nodding because you identified <laughs> so many issues and including you know quote they're just a runaway right it's no yeah it, apparently it's no big deal that the child ran away well yeah. do you ever think there might not have been good things happening in that residence of which the kid ran away from, including sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Now, I like what you said at the end, the discussion of the one-stop shopping, uh, unfortunately, and especially when you've got, and they can be really good, well-meaning groups, and sometimes it's going to be the prosecutor's office that's a problem as well. Um, the co-location, having some place where everybody has to get along really helps in the plan. And the other thing about the co-location or the one stop is it creates the respect for the other disciplines is that Mm -hmm. when they see things happening, they realize that, you know what? She knows what she's doing. You know, they, they see an interaction. They see an improvement in a particular case. They see some quick work. You know, the complaint, oh, the social workers are so slow. This kid goes missing. Social worker is there at the scene and has uh, an out-of-home placement ready uh, for the little girl as, as she uh, is, is, is received. Um, that sort of, you know, speaking by action really uh, assists and, and, and does some, some tremendous things. So, yes, you've got to get folks together, get them organized, but the other thing that you pointed out is resources, 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 resources. They are, no matter whether there's a criminal case or not, you've got a damaged youth. And your discussion of LBGTQ, um, youth, transgender, high levels of victimization, high levels of trauma as in their life already. And right. if those aren't addressed, they're going to be coming back. Yeah. Uh, it's just there, there's so much work to do out there, and, and I'm thinking that if we could create a system whereby we have regional one-stop places where they could they could have their needs, like you know how you go to a conference and you have all these exhibit tables set up with all of these these various groups that you know are part of the pie, and I, I just wish we could. Um, help solve our problems like that. Okay, you go here, then you go here, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll do this. But, uh, you know, life isn't that sequential and it isn't that easy. Uh, I mean, I don't know. We're, we're, not, we're not here to solve all the problems on Shattered Life Radio. We are here to open the conversation, and I think that's what we're doing, and to try to enlighten people. And um, so I think, you know, just by touching on these issues and see how – pervasive it is and what you are doing to help um what in the i don't know i guess five five or six minutes delilah i just lost my screen here um i wondered if you could talk about you know the the impact and 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 some of the the positives with regard to 
what you're doing, whether it's case examples with regard to certain victims um, that, you know, in comparison, it may not have been been possible in in the past, and, and then what your message would be to our audience um, for if they're in a family situation such as this, what what should they do in terms of uh, if they don't have particular resources right in their immediate area? Uh, what what are you doing with victims that you're most proud of, and and what should our audience do if they're facing these issues? Well, I I think that so first the 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 practical in the family situation where they feel needs are not being met, make noise. The system does not react, and I'm going to use the system as a, as broad as possible. The mm-hmm. system doesn't react until people start causing trouble. And whether it's the schools, whether it's social services, child protective services, when when a child's at risk and, and you know it, do something about it. Case examples and things that, that I see working well that, that have, have made a difference, is, as you were talking about the co-location, um, my local center here, um, and, and I live in, in Loudoun County, Virginia, uh, they're not co-located. They're attached to, and this is the Child Advocacy Center, they're attached to mm-hmm. the children's hospital, but the, and the hospital is gracious to allow them to be doing the interviews and medical exams and such, but they don't have enough room to be able to have all the units uh, be, be together. I didn't know that because I was looking at what a great team environment it was. Mm-hmm. And I talked to the director, and her name's Judy, and I said to Judy, I, go, I can't believe that you, you are such a good team without being co-located. And the particular case that I had helped with a little bit this past year was an um, ex-husband kills his ex-wife, four kids involved, um, and, and killed her by hanging her to try to make it look like a suicide. And and I bring it into the context, and the and the kids were brought into the center, so there was no allegation of child abuse. It was it was a murder, and potentially that these were the child witnesses to the murder. Um, and and there were repeated interviews and lots of services to to the kids. But but bringing it to your topic, her, she is convinced that because the center does, and 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 I was pleased, you know, they do witnesses. They do witness. I guess I'm saying that wrong. They will extend the services to the witnesses of a traumatic or a violent act. It's her belief that working on things like these homicide cases and the emotion behind a situation where someone would kill their ex in front of their kids, um, just the, the cruelty and depravity brings that team together. Because each of the different pieces get to see it and see and the professionalism and everything that I spoke about before. She's convinced it's not the, the sexual assault cases that, that are the routine or the neglect cases. It, it's these homicide cases that have really made a difference. And then uh, finally, another practical, J.C. Dugard that we talked about earlier. And J.C. was the one abducted in Antioch, held for 18 years, had, had two uh, children with her abductor, um, the doctor's wife was, of course, also involved in that case. They're both serving very, very lengthy prison terms. But she's she has formed the JC Foundation, and that's when 
you know, my work with her directly and our work, my work on behalf of APA with her is trying to um, make certain that the professionals involved in that case don't jump to conclusions and don't tell the victim what they ought to be doing, what they ought to be feeling. We've, we've got to use that child first doctrine on an adult and realize, like in her situation, here's someone who was abducted for 18 years. And so trying to get her re-entered into society is is a huge challenge. So don't jump to things. And, and I know your work with the homicide victims' families. Nobody, victims are, are not a monolithic, they're going to do this. That's not true. Take them as they are work with their needs and and always think of them don't think of your case don't don't think of of other uh, things that are on your mind her her biggest thing was the vaccination of her kids is uh, the child services right there were saying well we've got to get these kids vaccinated because of course they'd had no inoculations because they had been born basically in captivity she's mm-hmm. like that was the last thing on her mind Vaccinations, you know. please. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you're indignant about that. So, so I think that's wow. the important thing. That's, that's, it, that's incredible. Well, and, I don't know. Maybe maybe someday we'd have the opportunity to to talk with her. I don't know. Um, we can discuss that. But um, in any in any case, um, we have unfortunately our hour has has uh, passed us uh, very shortly, and I wondered if. If you would like to hear from other people and they'd like to know more about what you do or you could perhaps steer them to particular resources that you know of uh, after people have listened to this podcast, would you be willing to give some contact information here? Absolutely. So the easiest contact, and and it sounds like you were uh, trolling our website. So uh, our website is is easy. (laughs) It's www.apainc.org, Association of Prosecuting Attorneys Incorporated.org. Um, so that is the first. My okay. email is david.laban, L-A-B-A-H-N, same thing, at apainc.org. There's an info site on there. Our general number is 202-861-2480. Um, for those that, that still use telephones, uh, that works as well. But as you said, we have a number of different projects. I've got some incredible staff and uh, we would really love to hear from your audience. Well, that's great. And let's, you and I keep in touch as well because things are ever-evolving and changing, and um, we we always welcome you on this show or to working on uh, projects and collaboration if, if, if you'd like. So thank you, thank you for taking the time. Uh, did, Lila, you have any parting uh, comments you'd like to make? Well, again, I'd like to thank David for taking the time to be on and, yeah. and giving listeners all of this wonderful information and you know hopefully someone out there is being helped absolutely david thank you so much for the good work you do and and thank you for um taking the time with us today um stay in touch all right always a pleasure okay and cool. likewise back to time. you thank thank you for everything yes. you're doing thank you Bye. Uh, we'll see you next week, everyone, for the next edition of Shattered Life Radio. Always a pleasure. Have a safe and good weekend, everyone. Thanks, Delilah.